Hi, this is the Airdemo Shag, and I've never <laughs> been on the Quarterbin podcast. <laughs> this is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarterbin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will select sort of at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For the 77th episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, we're looking at Freaks, number two, from Ultraverse Malibu Comics, cover dated August 1993. But first, a little feedback. We've had a lot of guests on the podcast recently, and haven't done feedback for a bit. But I wanted to give a shout-out to Mario Reyes, a.k.a. Luther Lang, on Twitter. He's been catching up on the shows on the network after hearing the promos and personal recommendations on Michael Bailey's shows. Thank you, Michael Bailey. We also did some furious Twittering in the afterglow of a glorious St. Totteringham's Day. And if you don't know what that is, let's just say that North London will always be red and leave it at that. On the Free Comic Book Day episode, of course, we heard from Shlomo. On the ROM Free Comic Book Day issue, Shlomo is affiliated with romspacenightart.blogspot.com. He sent me a copy of the email that he sent to IDW about the issue and did not love it as much as he wanted to. He thought the armor redesign was overboard and that the neutralizer looked like some kind of bizarre kitchen appliance or a high-tech back massager from an infomercial. He concludes with, I understand that the success of the new show won't depend entirely on the fans who grew up with the original series, but was it really necessary to so drastically change the character from a visual standpoint in order for this new series to have a broader readership appeal? That is the problem with reboots like this, where they have to update for the modern age, but they still have to cater to 50-year-olds like me who read ROM when it was fresh on the shelves. We heard from Isaac Miner, a listener who found us also via Michael Bailey, in this case, Bailey's Batman podcast. You know that, the podcast that Michael had me on, and then killed the entire podcast after that. I started with the Professor's Show Quarterbin podcast, and have been a loyal listener to everything ever since. Thank you, Isaac. Good to have you on board. And then we heard from the man himself, podcasting's Michael Bailey. I am Michael Bailey. Who commented on episode 74, The Girl Frenzy, episode. Alan, I'm really glad that you covered three of the Girl Frenzy books. The DC fifth week events were a mixed bag in terms of concept and execution. Some, like Amalgam or Tangent or The JSA Returns, were a lot of fun and had some great stories. Other, like The Silver Age, or the JLA fifth week event where the A meant something else, like Justice League Arkham, Justice League Alien, etc., were... What's the opposite of good? On paper, Girl Frenzy seems like it might fall into the not-so-good category. But that wasn't the case. My memories of the stories and your coverage lined up almost evenly, and if you spot the other books in, in this event in the quarter bin, I cannot recommend you picking them up enough. The Young Justice Secret, one in particular, stands out 
as it was part of the lead into the Young Justice series that was about to hit the stands. Also, even though Stella probably got in touch with you about this, I thought I'd mention that the Birds of Prey book came out six months before that ongoing launched. So this was another lead-in special, promoting an upcoming title. Keep up the good work. Thanks for all the great shows. Well, thank you, Michael, for your own listenership and for evidently directing everyone else who listens to the show to the show. I found that a lot of those comic events that happened when I was not paying attention to what was happening in comics have actually turned out to be pretty good. Of course, as Michael pointed out, a lot have not been so good as well. Chris Willette also commented that that was a fun episode. And the great podcasting couple, Darren and Ruth Sutherland, also wrote in about episode 75 with Paul Spataro, where we talked about The Thing and his team up with Wondar and Solar and Quasar and many, many other characters. Hi, Professor Allen. This was an interesting one for us, listening to two knowledgeable podcasters talking about characters I had virtually no knowledge of. So I guess I came away from the episode more knowledgeable than I was before, though I'm not completely sure that's a good thing, given my limited brain capacity and the characters involved. I think just like Sherlock Holmes endeavored to forget things that didn't benefit his detective skills, I should probably forget these characters as quickly as possible to leave brain capacity for more important information. Still, it was a terrific and fun episode while I was listening. Plus, the two of you managed to work in talking about Maxwell Smart and the Cone of Silence. Get Smart is an all-time favorite, so bonus points for that episode. Take care, Darren, or maybe Ruth. To be honest, the Sherlock Holmes comment has me leaning toward Darren as the actual sender of that note. We also heard from Zeb Oswald. Cool podcast as always. Still can't believe he did a podcast on Quasar without Gene. Yeah, more about that shortly. Still, it was great to hear you and Paul talk about Marvel 2-in-1. It was a great comic book in the 70s and 80s. Can't wait to hear the next episode. Thanks, Zeb. And speaking of Gene Hendricks, as you probably know, Gene is the host of many, many podcasts. But for purposes of this email, it's important to note that he hosts The Quantum Cast, a show about Quasar who was one of the characters, one of the many, many characters, I will point out in my defense, sharing space in that issue. I heard a lot from Gene, as a matter of fact, on this, including this particular missive. Professor, so you're covering an issue with Quasar in it, and you have Paul on as a guest. Fine, I can take a hint. I know when I'm not wanted... I do have to grudgingly admit that Paul is superior in his knowledge of Marvel from this era, so I guess he was a good choice to talk about this kind of story. You both did a good job covering the book, and I'd like to thank you for promoting Quasar to the second tier of characters. He's usually ranked much lower. Having read the Project Pegasus story, I have to agree that it's a very dense read, which is my preferred type of comic. Yes, it's wordy, but there's a whole lot going on, and it does flow really well. Reading these issues back-to-back, you do get a bit too much of the let-me-tell-you-what-just-happened-even-though-we-were-both-here sort of thing, but it works for the most part. If you keep in mind the every-comic-is-someone's-first rule, that's the only way it makes sense. But, again, it works. 
Jean. I think the most important thing for Jean to keep in mind is that Paul Spataro picked the issue for that episode. So if anyone is to blame for keeping Quasar away from Eugene, it's Paul. It's probably an issue best dealt with the two of you in the Choo Choo Freaks Human Resources Department. Ryan Daly also chastised Paul and I for being needlessly harsh to all of the Solar completists out there. Yeah, sure. Now, last episode, I covered issue 9 of Ms. Tree Quarterly with guest Mark Sweeney. In case you didn't know, we covered issue 10 of that title on Mark's show on the I'm the Gun podcast, so check that out. But I did want to end this section with the number one top email of the episode, and maybe ever. Look, I love everyone who's ever sent us feedback. Understand that. But I'm not sure how many of you have ever actually written the comic book that you are feedbacking on. Okay, maybe Paul O'Connor. Which is to say that this is the feedback we got on last episode from a man I like to call Max Allen Collins, the writer of many, many pulp novels, the Dick Tracy comic strip, oh, Road to Perdition, and the co-creator of Ms. Tree. Thank you for this review. Terry and I have discussed doing a new mystery graphic novel, as well as collecting the existing material for some time, but the need to pursue making a living in our various manners has always been in the way. No legal rights tie up the character per se, although there is some entanglement maybe over the TV rights. The mystery novel, Deadly Beloved, is actually my novelization of the script that I wrote for the TV series that never happened. With Terry doing Rex Morgan and Phantom, and me writing four or five novels a year, doing Ms. Tree again seems unlikely, but doing Ms. Tree in the world of comics has always been unlikely. After picking my jaw up off the floor, I thanked Mr. Collins for this reply, as did Mark. I told him that I couldn't thank him enough for taking the time to listen to our rambling thoughts on work he did 20 years ago, and the specifics of his comments made it clear that he did actually listen to the episode. Mark thanked him again for replying and commented that I'd be over the moon should a new graphic novel ever be announced. Here's hoping. And then, seven or eight hours after his original comment, Mr. Collins bounced back into the thread and added this. Both Terry and I want to do a Ms. Tree graphic novel. It may yet happen. Always a mistake to think Ms. Tree is finished. I mean, yes, I tagged him in the Twitter post that announced the episode, but I do that with a lot of creators, and never once actually thinking that one would bother to listen to the episode. I mean, this is work, in Max Allen Collins' case, that he did two decades ago. That's just crazy. And I'm not going to lie, though. Max Allen Collins is now one of my favorite comic writers of all time. And thanks again to all the feedbackers. And just really to everyone who listens. I very much appreciate it. Everyone. Even those of you who have not created a comic character that's been covered on the show. Let's take a break here, play a promo, and when we come back, I'll be joined by a special guest. Mm, I'll be joined by a guest to talk about Freaks, number two. Warlord Worlds. 
a fan podcast devoted to the comic creations of Mike Grell, including Warlord, John Sable, Star Slayer, Shaman's Tears, and Green Arrow. I'm Darren. And I'm Ruth. Join us as we discuss the stories, characters, and art in the many excellent comics from writer and artist Mike Grell. Warlord Worlds is available at podbean.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. Find us at warlordworlds.com. And we're back. And by we, I mean myself, and a first time quarterbin podcast guest in a strict technical sense a few episodes back paul spitaro was on the show and he mentioned that between my voice and just being referenced that it's possible i've appeared on back to the bins and avenger spotlight as much as anyone who's not a regular host and i think we have a similar thing happening here today because this man's voice has been heard many times on the show and he is referenced quite often. But this is his actual, factual, quarter bin podcast debut. Give a warm welcome to the irredeemable shag. All right, Professor. Let's just let's just put it out on the table. What's the gag this time? Seriously. What is this another very special episode? What's the gimmick to keep me from really being on the quarter bin? I have no doubt that this you're just gonna Pull the rug out in a minute and go, oh, actually, this is another Relatively Geeky Presents, which is what I got to be on last time. I've done cameos on Uncovering the Bronze Age. You've been, appeared on our show, the Fire and Water Podcast, That's true. Mm-hmm. and there have been dozens, maybe thousands of unauthorized sound bites of me stolen and used on Shortbox Showcase and Quarterbin. If we throw in all the times your voice has been on the Relatively Geeky Network, that's probably as much as Stella in her appearance. It probably works out to about the same amount of airtime. Was Stella on your show? I think so. Oh, well, I heard you talking about a comic with then, then there was some dead air. Fray, but some I, just, dead air. I didn't hear any of the rest of that. But anyway, I just figured sooner or later here you're going to tell me, oh, we got you again, Shag. You're still not on the quarter bin because I never get to be on the quarter bin. I, mean, I did tell you we're recording this a little bit in advance, so just early, let me just say April Fool's. <laughs> Always fall for it. Darn it. I even have notes and everything. I mean, come on, look. I've had Ron Sadowski on the show. I've had Stella. I've had Paul Spitaro. I mean, let's Switch be down. honest. Let's be honest. There really wasn't anyone left but you. Right. You're, you're pretty much at the bottom of the barrel, so finally. Oh, no, what I meant, I meant building up. I meant building up. Well, sir, it is a pleasure to be here on the quarter band, if in fact I actually am. I love this show. I've been a big supporter of the show since it started. I've been your number one fan, or probably only fan, realistically, let's be honest. And um, I'm just thrilled to be here talking with you. And you uh, christened me uh, Professor Alan Quarterbin. I'm a fan of that. I think I may have stolen that from David Gutierrez. I'm not sure, but I'll take it. Sure. I'll own it. I'll own that. I got something for you here. We, I've been trying to push you for a long time to get into Marvel Unlimited, right? This is the, the digital platform. I'm trying to drag you kicking and screaming into uh, 2008. Is the so, Ultraverse on there yet? 
<laughs> I mean, is, that, is that where this is going? No, no, it's not. But it has to do with the nature of this show. And what is this show about? Cheap comic books. My Cheap favorite com- kind of comic books. Exactly. Now, Marvel Unlimited. It costs $69 for an annual subscription. Now, I'm going to do a little math here, okay? I happen to know a guy who's an economics professor who might help you be able to keep up with this. So see if you can follow along at home. $69 for an annual subscription to Marvel Limited. I have it on my tablet. I love it. It has changed the way I read comics forever. So $69 a month, equivalent to basically paying for two, do- two comics a month. The two, do- two comics at $299, right? Which I know you would never spend, but normal people at home probably buy comics at $299 or $399. And if you just stop buying two of those comics a month, it would pay for this Marvel subscription. Now, here's where I'm going where it interests you and your readers or listeners. I've had my subscription a little over a year now. And last year, I actually tracked every comic I read on the app because I wanted to know if I was getting my value. And I'm a super nerd. I was going to go with loser, but nerd works too. Sure. Okay. Uh, you know how there's like type A personality? I'm like type A plus. Anyway. John, I've read your college transcripts. You are type C minus. <laughs> We're not really going to talk about that. Anyway, <laughs> you're, once you get to my age, your degree doesn't matter as much as how long you've been in the workforce. So anyway, uh, last year I personally read through the Marvel app 231 comics. Now, that sounds like a ton, but really – it wasn't. I didn't read that many comics. I just would casually read a few. I would sort of binge read a storyline maybe and, and read it really fast, but it added up to 231 comics. If you look at 231 comics, it's $69. That works out to just under 30 cents an issue. That's pretty oh, cheap. that does not count. Hold on. Well, Professor, you know, I, I hold the line that three for a dollar does not count. I know. As, as Professor Cheap's – oh, wait a minute. What did you just say? Nothing. I didn't – nothing. Nothing. We're gonna have to talk about that. Anyway, uh, you being Professor Cheap, Cheap Bin, Cheapskate, Quarter Bin, Skate, whatever, thirty cents. You're thinking what a ripoff, right? But wait, I also loaded the Marvel Unlimited app on my stepson's tablet. He was able to log in with my same account, so we both could read Marvel Unlimited for the price of one. He didn't track how many comics he read because apparently that's not something normal people do. But it's not. At a very, very conservative estimate. That kid read about 75 comics last year on the app, most of which were Deadpool, unfortunately, but whatever. So if you combine my total with his conservative total, that brings the price of the comic down to 23 cents per comic. Eat that, economics professor. Here's the thing. Mm-hmm. The book has to be in my collection. I don't count books I read from the library. They don't count as quarter bin books, even though I get them for free. Mm-hmm. Consuming is not the same as owning. I only okay. count books that I own. Bam! I can see that. I can, I, I can get on board with that. But for your pure enjoyment and feeling good about the amount of money you spent to read it, I think it could be something worth considering for yourself. And, and keep in mind, some of these comics you read for only 23 cents per comic – are going to be back issues that you would never find in a quarter bin. Many that have never been reprinted. So you're going to read something that could be worth, I don't know, $40 back issue. You'd read it for 23 cents. I like the way you think. Wait, yes, did sir? I just say that on a recording? I'm, going to, I'm recording this as well, so oh. I'm keeping a copy of that, buddy. <laughs> also, we're thinking about, since even better than 23 cents per copy is free, right now Comixology has an, their unlimited platform they just launched, and it's a uh, first month free. So you could read stuff for 30 days for free. 
And where's the Warner Brothers DC Unlimited? Let me tell you, I am oh. knocking on that door as often as I can, waiting for them to open the door. And please don't write in and tell us why DC can't do it because of all the royalty deals. I think they're internal Warner Brothers things that will disallow things like that happening. That is in their DNA to well. hoard their product and not release it. It's very strange. So, no, to answer your question, the Ultraverse is not on the Marvel app. Uh, and I, I hesitate. I was almost, almost going to say yet, but let's be realistic. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, it's not there. Well, like I was trying to say 11 and a half minutes ago, good to have you on the show. <laughs> Thanks. I'm glad to be here, supposedly. Now, you are known for having a wide range of fandoms. You love Firestorm. Yoo-hoo. But you're willing to cheat on him with the entire Legion of Superheroes. True that. And toss all of them over for the JLI. Heck yeah. But another one of those uh, old girlfriends that you just can't seem to give up on <laughs> is the Ultraverse. That is absolutely true, sir. <laughs> so absolutely true. What is it about the Ultraverse that works for you? Were, were you in it from the start? Why are you so passionate? You hit the nail on the head. I was there in the beginning. I was working for Comic Book Store when this came out. We were carrying We were selling this product. We were carrying it. I was able to get my hands on issues number one. And the, the Ultraverse was just an amazing group because it was so interconnected. It was you – know, you read a lot of independent comics, you know, especially superhero teams, whether it be Image or whatever, and it feels sort of disconnected or they don't feel like a Marvel or DC, you know? Whereas the Ultraverse did. It was so interconnected. Every character knew each other somehow or bumped into each other or there'd be references. There would be team-ups. There were crossovers. It legitimately felt like a shared universe that was exciting. You felt like you were in on the ground floor with something. And I personally followed Freaks. Um, I followed Firearm. I followed Prototype and Prime and Nightman and Ultra Force. And, and, and I did stop at one point, and we can, if we talk about, how, depending on how much we talk about the Ultraverse, I'll let you know exactly kind of how that fits together. But since then, I've been slowly reading the entire back catalog of Ultraverse comics, and it's joy. It is very 90s, but I don't care. It's very, very fun, and it's a very neat universe to hang out in. Well, we've done some Ultraverse content here on the quarter, but in the past, this is will actually be our fifth Ultraverse episode, and at least for a while... Cover your ear, Shag. This is going to be the last one. Ooh. There's a lot of dead universes and defunct publishers out there. Their books are all over the quarter bins. So I sort of just want to do like mini-series of those and, you know, close the book on the Ultraverse at least for a little while. So does the pre-Flashpoint DC universe count as a dead universe now? <laughs> so now all of those, you know, po- uh, post-crisis Superman that you got out of the quarter pin now count. It's a dead universe. And the way uh, New Fifty Two is a dead right. universe, I think. That's true. <laughs> but, but like I said, I sort of wanted to, you know, put a put just you know a bow on our coverage of the Ultraverse here on the quarter bin. And obviously, if we're going to do that, we had to bring in someone from the. Dearly Departed Ultraverse Network. Oh, And let's be honest, I didn't have Dave Gutierrez' Skype info and Ben Avery was busy. So, (gasps) no, what I meant was it's great to have you, Shag. Oh my gosh. You hit me in the gut with an Ultraverse Network reference, and then you double punch me with those two guys? For those of you at home who don't know, even though Alan likes to pick on me whenever he can, even if I'm here or not, 
The Ultraverse Network was something that a group of us, we, we put together. And for six glorious months, the Ultraverse had some of the support and, and promotion through the podcasting world that it deserved from September 2014 to March 2015. As you mentioned, Ben Avery, David Gutierrez, myself, uh, and a few other guys I'll mention in a second here, came together and formed a network. We had our own website. We had blog posts. We had podcasts. And we were trying to celebrate the Ultraverse and our passion for it. David and I, we actually had a podcast called Prime Your Life, which we covered a variety of Ultraverse topics. We, we managed to squeeze out seven episodes for, for Pod Faded. Ben Avery, hosted, uh, friend of this show, uh, mm-hmm. hosted the Nightman podcast, which was fantastic. I love that. He, he was able to get six episodes. Uh, we worked with another guy named Kane Doer, and he did a podcast called Wrath of Aladdin which was a combination of podcasts and blog posts. He did a few of those. And then we had other folks that were doing the blog for us. Robert McGinty is a great guy, and he was doing something called Jumpstart Your Collection, which was all about various items that that might be rare to find that were Ultraverse-related. Barry Reese, we love Barry Reese. He was doing Strangers reviews every week. We also had contributions from Sean Corey and uh, near and dear late David Sopko. Uh, it's still out there. Actually, you can find it. You can just go to ultraversepodcast.com or ultraversenetwork.com. Either one will take you there. It just real life got in the way. You know, we, we just couldn't keep it up, and sadly, it, it fell over to the side. And I got to tell you, at least once a month, I get a pang of sadness. <laughs> yep. And then I start trying to come up with a plan in my head how to make it work again. And it just, it's just not there. There's not enough time in the yeah. day. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have a wife. I have two children. I have a job. I, you know, I've got the Fire and Water Podcast Network. And I got to say, all joking aside... We do like to kid the irredeemable shag on occasion. Occasion. Ultraverse Network was some of the some of your best stuff. And I mean that of the entire network, all wow. of, of the the blogs, the podcasts, all that stuff. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Well, thank you very much. It's very kind of you. I really enjoy. I think you've probably enjoyed the most the the audio drama episodes where Dave and I barely spoke at all. That's probably the ones you mean, but. Those were bad. Actually, okay. I seem to recall getting a nasty note. Actually, from some you of those were pretty bad. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I seem to recall a nasty note from you saying, "When are you guys going to get back to a real podcast?" But no, we had a great time, and uh, uh, there is an episode there that I am still very, very proud of to this day, which is our trading card episode, where we managed to cover. Right. I think it was a 180 trading card set, some or 90. Either way, it was a huge trading card set, and we managed to do it in podcast format, and yet I think it kind of worked. So, which does bring us to. Freaks, number two. Do you have any idea when you would have acquired your copy? Probably off the shelves. And more importantly, do you know how much you would have paid for it? Thinking a dollar ninety-five, unless you had a good employee discount. I did have a good employee discount, actually. <laughs> so I would have got it probably, I don't know, thirty percent off or whatever. But I did get it, you know, probably the day it came out. It did have a cover price of $1.95, meaning I acquired it at a nice 87% discount. Nice. I'm not knocking your 30% employee discount. I'm sure that was fine. <laughs> I'm sure that was okay. You had to get your fingers all black and dirty from digging it through a quarter bin. Almost certain that's that's dirt. And why is that? One fingernail is purple and the other one's bubbling. Anyway, minor, that that's not important. By the way, forgot the to mention. Hunt as well. free- Free comic book day. I bought a ton of comics out of a ten cent bin, buddy. You are my hero. You are <clears> my hero. Electric warrior. You are mine. Oh, you may have overpaid. <laughs> Freaks number two. I'm looking at the cover. Yep. Ben Herrera. Yep. And this shows pressure, 
Hmm. She's power blasting somebody off the edge of the panel. A couple of the other freaks are around her. Yep. Uh, What do you think of the cover? It's good. It's not – well, here's the problem. And you're only looking at issue number two, so you don't even have the problem I have. Issue number one, the cover's by Walt Simonson. Yeah, that is a problem. And so I, I, I read that. Your... Yeah, I saw the little thumbnail of it. So, yeah. Ooh, yeah, that's that does make a difference. So that's that's the unfortunate thing. But Ben Herrera is a great artist, and he really does a wonderful job with the characters. And when you step back from it, you look at okay, it's basically it is Val. Uh, you called her Pressure. I don't think she gets that name till issue three, but she's fighting the rest of the freaks. And it worked. I mean, that is the sense you get. She's in the middle. She's trying to blast Lewis. You know, and you've got Ray behind her, and you've got Angela, and Michael's apparently sort. I like how Michael's sort of outside the frame, given it's his, almost like he's watching this on TV. Exactly, which works perfectly with his powers because right. he's a you know in the cyber world. It's now, not the greatest cover in the world, yeah. but I think it's very effective and it does its job and it's nice. Now, for me, one of the problems with it, especially given Malibu's reputation, mm-hmm. is the colors. What's the problem? It's just a little green and purple and. A, brown and a purpley blue it's all a bit muddy almost i think it's a, hmm. nothing really pops you know there's no real contrast yeah i think it's very nice i like the motion i like sort of the circular motion of it yes i think that's strong ben Herrera was very good at creating a dynamic panel you'll see that a lot in this issue too where you feel like a character's really moving like especially the character of rush in this comic when he's running around you right. feel a lot of the motion and Malibu did love their kind of greenish, slimy-looking things. There's no denying that. If you read Prime, they loved goop <laughs> in, in the Ultraverse, and I'm okay with that. The comic book medium is built on the primary colors, and there's really not much here. There's not a, a bright red that pops, a yellow that pops, a blue. There's nothing in those traditional sort of comic book color palette. True. And I think that puts me off just a little bit. It's not It's not what I'm used to, probably as Look, much as anything else. Clearly, you have a problem with green. I like money. <laughs> you like so, keeping it. <laughs> I, like, I do. <sighs> if we turn the page, we get the story, Blown Apart, written by Gerard Jones, with art by Ben Herrera and Michael Christian. The story starts with Valerie, who will eventually become pressure firing her power blasts off the page. And the big bruiser, Boom Boy, is not really a fan of this. So this first, I guess, intro meeting of the freaks ends in heated arguments and 90s-style fighting. There are a lot of exclamation points, bold typeface, and some dramatic posing against one of my issues, walls of shifting background colors. Hmm. They're against purple, then they're against orange, then they're against yellow, then they're against aqua. Okay. So Val, soon to be pressure, leaves in a huff, and by that I mean jumps out a window in number of stories high. She's confronted by the authorities, but fortunately, before she can forcefully resist arrest, which she doesn't want to do, but she probably would do if she had to, the speedster Rush runs by and grabs her. Sorry, I mean the Double time, adrenaline pumped, hormone sweat, and crazed brain bullet of Rush. (laughs) (laughs) And yes, he does introduce himself in his own font. That's awesome. It's always cool when you have your own logo in your name. (laughs) Like, I imagine when you introduced me, there was actually a word balloon that said the irredeemable shag with an amazing font. Yeah, you think that. (laughs) 
<laughs> Meanwhile, the other members of the Freaks try to come to terms with their situation. Some of them reflect on their origins, so we learn about Lewis, the morpher who can change himself into anything. So he's anything. And the Grey Hulk. I mean, Boom Boy. Oh. He's the Grey Hulk. He's not. He's made of stone. He's the Grey Thing. <sighs> you just like to tear everything down and <laughs> suck the joy out of everything. I've gotten that on teacher evaluations. Yes. <laughs> we get the computer geek Michael. He's plug. He can control electronic objects and surf himself into cyberspace because 90s. And the introduction of the team involves him forming himself out of electrons, totally nude. And the beautiful Angela, sweet face, is covered with tentacles that she can use to grab things or lash out at people, I guess. Back on the street, pressure. Slugs rush while he's running with her. That was probably my favorite moment of the book. (laughs) But that doesn't seem to phase him very much. He invites her to use her powers for money, like he does, even if it may mean breaking an occasional law if you look at it in a strict technical sense. Like, you know, being a freelance mob enforcer, for example. I do think that his color scheme is a little gaudy for that line of work. You know, it's usually a gray and black suit sort of scenario the bright yellow might stand out among, he likes the, to get among atten- the other enforcers i think he likes to get attention though i think so so uh rush takes pressure to a place where they'll be earning some cash as enforcers and they see a tv broadcast featuring captain jacob rome the man in charge of the police case involving the freaks rush reveals that that's his dad and from a rooftop rush pressure See that the police are closing in on the freak's hideout, but she doesn't care. It's what they deserve. Now tell me about this job we're doing. Next, freaks versus freaks. Mr. Shag. Yes. Overall, thoughts on the issue? Well, I'm going to have to compartmentalize my thoughts. Because the, the purpose of the quarter bin is to evaluate a comic on its own. So... I have lots to say about the Freak series. Well, we'll I, get to that. We'll get right. to that. Well, it, it all builds on itself yes. with my comments. So, uh, artistically, I enjoyed the issue. I, I see where you're coming from with the coloring. I hadn't noticed the changing background colors. I get that. Now, I did like some of the background details, though. Like, there were certain things, like, uh, in the abandoned building they were hanging out, and the walls were covered with the graffitied band names from the 90s, which right. I thought was pretty funny. Right. I enjoyed that. Also, when Rush was running, we got to see a copy of a magazine fluttering in the wind, which was Ultra Monthly, which was a magazine. <laughs> right. What I love about that is that is an incontinuity magazine about ultras, which in the real world, Malibu actually published it. Basically, a promotional comic, usually fairly short. It wasn't the full-length comic length. And it was almost like one of those comic shop news things that you buy right. you know, or you, right. you get. And, um, but it was done – it was written as if it was like a real-life news magazine and the ultras were real. And it was a fun little read, but at the same time, it was a great little promotion for the comics that were coming up. And I just love that they threw that in the background. Nice little uh, effort to do that. I like Herrera's style. He has a, a very stylistic, very angular faces and things like that. Reminds me a lot of Gaijin Studios, which was uh, Jim Lee's studio. Not necessarily reminding me of Jim Lee, but a lot of right. the people that worked mm-hmm. in his studio. Carl Story, people like that. I, I have other things to say, but what did you think about the issue? In terms of sticking with the art just for a second, I thought that was one of the strengths. 
Okay. I thought the pencil work was good. I thought the shading was interesting. Uh, I thought that like the landscape, sort of the visual world building, that's some of what you were getting at mm-hmm. in terms of some of the details and, and all of that. I thought that definitely came across as, I don't know, dark might not be the right word, but sort of cold, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is what they were going for. So like I said, sort of occasionally rotating background colors, <laughs> that does disrupt the mood a little bit. But the rest of the art really sets, I think, the right tone for this type of story. And along the same lines, he did a very good job making the characters look very, forgive the pun, freaky. I mean, Mm -hmm. Angela's tendrils, Michael's goop, you know, all the weird shapes Lewis could make and and Ray Stone-like features all were very designed to make you feel a little uncomfortable. Because these people are freaky. If they were in the real world, you wouldn't want to associate with them. You'd be grossed out by them. And I sort of get the concept I mean, I, I understand the recipe, you know, little Teen Titans and little X-Men flavor, a little 90s grit and grunge and angst. And you've got the freaks. I used to say when I was reading this book, when people would ask me what it was, I basically described it as this is what the X-Men would be if they were in the real world is what I would say back then, you know, because they're hunted by lots of different groups. They're hated by society, except this group doesn't have the benefit of a rich benefactor. You know, a fancy school or cutting-edge technology and costumes. They're just right. weird-looking kids with powers on the run. I thought some of the art was very effective, too. Like when Michael's face is being smashed into the monitor repeatedly, I, I genuinely felt oh, right. bad yeah. for the kid. Yeah. I like the panel of uh, Val towering over Rush when she punched him. She's got him on the ground. That's, She's like, hmm. telling me what this is about. I like that. Now, I just thought I, – I, again, I just thought that was a great moment because you usually don't see that, that when that when someone's running at super speed. Yep. The person that they're carrying always is a passive person. <laughs> I mean, that's 99.9% of it. And I would think you might get a little part of the pun freaked out right. in that circumstance. And, you know, if someone's running that fast, it doesn't take much to throw off their rhythm. Very true. Right? And if you can punch them or do anything to upset their balance, they're going tumbling. That you are as well, but at least you might be prepared for it. Right? <laughs> That's exactly what she pulls off there. I thought that was a, just a nice touch, something you don't see much in comics. She was a tough character. I enjoyed her. So that was mm-hmm. kind of cool that she was the one who did it. Now, I take issue with something in your recap, sir. Uh-oh. You mocked Michael's ability to travel in cyberspace. You, sir, Mr. Proponent and lifelong torchbearer for Lord Doom 2099 – who spent three issues talking about cyberspace, or three episodes of the Quarterbin, I should say. You, you're criticizing this for cyberspace travel? Really? Come on. The guy's name is Plug. Come no, on, it's Shag. Not. His, his name. Oh, well, Bite see, and you, Bug make fun of his name. That's all I'm saying. You're jumping ahead to issue number three, and I can't That's talk about it yet. That's what was on Comic Book DB. I know that, and I going to talk about it, but you can't talk about it yet because you've trapped me in this little box of issue number two. Well, hypothetically, if he were to be named Plug, Bite and Bug would make fun of that name. Hypothetically, they never used the names, and they were given to him by a mentally challenged giant boy made of stone. Oh. That doesn't seem very polite. The light bulb goes off. (laughs) But enough about Greyhulk. Okay. So seriously, how does the cyberspace in this comic stack up to your cyberspace from your beloved Doom 2099? Well, it lacks the Doom 2099 aspect. I'm not asking about Doom. I said cyberspace. It's fine, I suppose. Mm-hmm. He does come out naked. There's a lot of nakedness in this, too. That was funny. Because 
Angela takes off her clothes so she can use her tendrils. Uh, Lewis, when he stretches too far, he comes out of his clothes and he comes back naked. There's a lot of nakedness in this comic book. I thought it was a clever usage of her as she jumps out of the building to use the steam blast to slow her to a gentle fall to the ground. I, I thought that was great. And I, I do joke about Grey Hulk, but towards the end, it's on, mm-hmm. I got page 20, scene where he's he's hanging upside down because he's jumped off the, the building. Mm-hmm. There's some dynamic stuff there. And I think actually the Grey with the blue of his cape and his shorts, it actually, it actually kind of works. Looks a See? little gar- gargoyles-y. Yeah. But that works. He's supposed to be more like a stone statue. So give me a little bit of the context. What's going on in one and issue one, and where are we going to from here? Okay. Well, you noticed in this issue you got the backgrounds of Angela and Michael. So or as, as you would say, sweet face and plug. You got their origin story. That's why I'm, I'm so sad that you read just issue number two. Because the proper way to read this would be read issue number one first, which makes a fantastic one and – not one and done, but makes a standalone – I shouldn't say standalone either. But it makes a great introductory issue. You get everything you need to know in issue number one. It works great. Issue two just continues to build on that. And then issue three builds a little further and gives you a nice sort of heroic ending and almost like, well, the story's still continuing. And, and that's the nature of, this, of the freaks is their story never really stops. The first three issues make a nice little piece to read and get the full picture of these characters. So in issue number one, what you missed was we find out about Michael, who has been secretly sending – well, they kind of talked about it here. He's been secretly sending all these messages to everyone and bringing everyone together. Lewis, we found out in the first issue, was a high school football star. He was sort of the quarterback, and he took a really rough hit in a game, got knocked out, and turned to goo. You know how he stretches and gets all Mm. flat and stuff? He turned to goo in the middle of a stadium. Everyone started screaming, freaked out. Eventually, he ran away. Ray, whose story is so touching, and I wish this is, this issue had been a better spotlight for Ray, because Ray is honestly one of my favorite characters in the series. As a very young boy, he started turning to stone, and his parents didn't know what to do. So they hid him in the basement and left him there. Mm-hmm. He had basically nothing to do. I, and I'm not sure whether he's mentally challenged or just the lack of stimuli caused him to become mentally underdeveloped. Right. One, one way or another, he is what they would have said in the old days is slow. The parents, they were fairly kind to him, but they just wouldn't ever let him out of the basement. The only thing he had to keep him company was a copy of a book, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. And he would always imagine escaping the basement by going down the river. And when his parents were going to, they were going to, ultimately they were going to let Ray go with this. Some some ultra group showed up and wanted to take Ray away. And they were going to let him go because they didn't have the money to feed him anymore. And they didn't know what to do. So out of fear, he bursts out of the basement and he just starts running. Ever after that, Ray was kind of a little delusional, and he th- always saw Lewis as his rescuer. He saw him as Huck Finn. So that's why throughout the issue, he keeps calling Lewis Huck. Right. And Ray is such a sweet, sweet, wonderful character. In fact, in the first issue, he wants the group to stay, uh, stay together so bad, he, uh, in his simple way, he decides that they should become a gang. And he proceeds to graffiti the abandoned building they're in with spray paint. And he tries to spray paint the word freaks, and he misspells it. Mm-hmm. He misspells it F-R-E-E-X, which is the name of the comic. And he's the one that gives everyone their names. You know, you mentioned it. Plug, Sweet Face, Anything, Boom Boy, and uh, Pressure. They're ridiculous superhero names, and they almost never use them in the series. But because they come from Ray, it makes sense that they oh, are so simplistic see, that, names. That's sweet. I, I did have one specific question. Page eighteen ish, mm-hmm. before he the big guy, boom, yep. boom, boy, Ray. Yeah, 
before he jumps out of the building. Mm-hmm. Uh, there seems to be maybe a psychic yep. encounter that he has or something like that. That's correct. Does that become a thing? It's not just Ray. It happens to all of them over the okay. first few issues. There's uh, an evil spirit, and there's a term for it, I, our name. I can't remember what they call it because uh, I haven't read all these issues in a while. Uh, but there's a sort of an, a malevolent spirit that is trying to sort of seduce each one of them in different ways. Oh, okay. And so that is, that's, a, that's a bit of it there. Uh, I think issue number three, Angela, ha- happens to her, if I remember correctly. Gerard Jones was great at layering in story points, you know, that that took a while to to flesh out. And, and you know, by the way, you were talking about how the the characters fighting each other was very, very 90s and things like that with lots of exclamation points. Pal, that goes back to the <laughs> 60s. Pick up a couple issues of Stan and Jack's Fantastic Four and watch Human Torch and, and Thing and, fight each other with more uh, exclamation points than you can count <laughs> and tell me that that's a 90s thing. I didn't say it was bad. Mm-hmm. I just said it was a little, a yeah, little yeah, extreme. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah, borderline yeah. extreme. I do like Gerard Jones as a writer, and I think here, like you said, he's capturing strengths of each of these individual characters. Yep. And I like that. There is a sense of just reading this one that yeah, I certainly get a sense of what happened in issue one, which is they met and started fighting, <sighs> which I appreciate. That, that was not a sarcastic comment. You know, it pick, picks up in the middle of the action, so you get a sense for what, what had gone on before. A couple of them give their origin stories, so you're slowly layering that in. Then you've got the one who was left and met up with the speedster. Well, I should so mention they that. They could potentially be – they're the ones who are on the run. I assume they'll all come together again at some point, but you sort of got some splits within the within the group. And, and all of that is good storytelling stuff. So in the first issue, you got Lewis's origin, Ray's origin, and Val's origin. And Val's origin is very, very sad. She was a very troubled child. In her origin story, we find that she was locked in solitary confinement for juvenile delinquents. This scuzzy guard goes in, and her bed is starting to smolder from her steam powers that are just starting to develop. She doesn't even know about them yet. Anyway, security guard goes in there because he sees all the smoke, and he tells her he'll cover it up that she's been burning the bed. He'll cover it up if she has sex with him and he's basically forcing himself upon her. It's horrible. And she fights back and her steam powers manifest. And that's when she, I assume the guy died. I don't really remember, but he appears to get blasted heavily. And then she goes on the run and she's hiding out in a laundromat, contemplating her next move, whether it should be mugging somebody or start hooking. I mean, that's the kind of life this girl has led. It's very sad. As far as her look goes now, keep in mind, all these kids are, are, are teenagers. So they're all under 18, which Makes it very difficult for me to make, it, make a comment involving my normal catchphrase on other shows, which you've also <laughs> played on this show a thousand times. But I think I've found a way to work it in. I get the sense that they've tried to explain Val and draw her in such a way that she's probably hot at a teenage <laughs> level. Except I think we're also supposed to interpret she's a little bit of skanky hot. And I, I don't think I should have to explain that further. I think you should, most people know what I'm talking about. I think that's kind of who she is. Right. So when the situation shows up at the end of issue one, where Michael first man- appears to them as this giant, weird robotic body out of made out of junk, she freaks out and blasts it. And I love that opening page actually. And I know you have a problem with the color green for some reason, but I love her steam blasts blasting <laughs> apart that little robot body on the first panel. I think it's great. Now issue three, you talked about rush just to tell you what happens afterwards. Rush is a complete douchebag. 
and he has not joined the team. He does not stay a regular. In fact, I suspect Gerard Jones was using Rush as sort of a way to kind of make a comment on 90s characters, mocking them to some extent because he is he's a he's a horrible character. I don't his attitude, the way he uses his powers, everything about him screams 90s. And then they make him appear to be a horrible person. In fact, he's a bit bigoted. Turns out he was given his ultra powers by someone else, whereas the freaks are mutations and rather than created. And so when he finds out that they all were mutations rather than choosing to get powers, he's disgusted by it. And Val has enough of it, and she turns on him, and she rejoins the Freaks. So you get the, the core of the Freaks. Issue 3 ends with a nice hero moment, and that, that's what makes issues 1 through 3 a nice, inter- decent introduction to the characters. But Rush does have pretty flowing hair. He does, which is, <laughs> which is nice. So. so the verdict on Freaks number 2. I think based on our conversation, I know where you're going to go with this, but <laughs> Shag, is this book worth a quarter? It's worth $1.95. You paid $1.38. I would have paid it again. <laughs> so it's a, it's a definite quarter bin steal. I'm not as in love with it as you are. And I think that's because you read issue two first. That very well could be. It's a little flashy, a little action-y. There was enough substance that helped keep me engaged but at the core i do agree a quarter bin deal i'm not saying 50 cents or a dollar but definitely a quarter look definitely a quarter the quarter bins are replete with ultraverse books yes now i'll just freely admit that there's no way you can't find a copy of freaks number one in there i'm sorry just find freaks number one read that then reread number two and you will be completely on board sir do i have to read number three also well number four is a steve root cover Oh, that's nice. Yeah. And Val is definitely drawing hot there, though. She doesn't look 16. She looks like a grown woman there. So. <laughs> and it's Steve Roots. I don't feel bad saying that. So, Now, let's talk a little bit about where the Freaks goes from here. By the way, one of the big things that comes up when you talk about Freaks is the name of the book. A lot of people aren't sure how to pronounce it. A lot of people would call it Free X. You obviously want to make sure that you get the X part of the name in there for various marketing reasons, I would think. You would think that. However, I asked some questions this week. I went out to the Ultraverse Facebook page, which, by the way, if you're even remotely an Ultraverse fan, you really need to go check this out. It's a Facebook page just called Ultraverse. Check it out. You have to ask to join. But it's a wonderfully inclusive area for anyone who's an Ultraverse fan. They let me in, so they'll let you in. I mean, they'll let anyone in. I'd probably let you in Uh, (laughs) because I'm a moderator. (laughs) But but the actual creators from the Ultraverse books, a lot of them hang around there. Just in this week, I had a conversation with Tom Mason, who is creative director over at Malibu, uh, Gerard Jones, the man who wrote this comic book, Dave Ulbrich, who is the Mal- Malibu's publisher, Ben Herrera, who drew this issue, and Jerome K. Moore, who's another famous artist who drew some uh, Ultraverse books. I communicated with all of them this week about this comic. I actually asked, I was curious, who created the Freaks? Because I knew Gerard Jones was obviously the writer, and Ben Herrera is the artist, however, However, I had seen some previous stuff where they had shown Walt Simonson's artwork on the Freaks, and they listed him as the character designer. So I asked. And Tom Mason, who is probably the best best way I would describe him, is he's sort of the ambassador to the Ultraverse creators nowadays. He is so nice, and he is so knowledgeable, and he will answer any 
insanely nerdy question about the Ultraverse, <laughs> and he'll do it in incredible amount of detail, and it's engaging reading, and he's a great guy. So he said that Gerard Jones did create the freaks at the Ultraverse Founders Conference in Scottsdale, Arizona, and Walt Simonson did do the original character designs after that, and Ben drew the series. Then we got into a discussion exactly what you were talking about with the X in the title. And Gerard Jones was kind of saying, not really. He, he was looking for something based on the word freaks. He was thinking kind of uh, that Todd Browning freaks movie, you know, one of us. And he figured it should probably be misspelled or something because it's hard to trademark a word that's very common. Oh, that's true. So, right. So they right. thought he sense. was thinking change it to F-R-E-E-K-S. Some of this he said he admits freely that this is his memory. Doesn't mean it's accurate. It's the way he remembers it. Um, he pitched it to the group, and then he someone else said, how about put an X at the end, you know, F-R-E-E-X, and he said, sure, whatever. Now, that was most likely that was Dave Ulbrich who said that, and uh, were they trying to make it on the X-Men's heat? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it was just more creative because uh, they do freely admit that the book Exiles they published was definitely trying to get the attention of the X title. You ask uh, luxury automobile makers. There's something about Qs and Xs and Zs. Absolutely. You know, they're they're letters that work for us, at least uh, speakers of American English. Right? Yeah. Those are letters that stand out, that just mean something. Well, they're uncommon. They're not yeah. used frequently. The term Generation X, I think, was coined during the 90s, even yes. though we've been around for a while. Mm -hmm. The X Games started. Extreme Studios. The X-Men were huge. I mean, it was just X's were everywhere in the 90s. Right. But enough about your former girlfriends. Oh, oh is, snap. That, is, is, is that not what you meant? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so a little bit more on the freaks real quick, um, just to tell you where they kind of went after this. They did find out how they got their powers. Apparently 15 years ago, a nurse injected a bunch of infants with a mixture of mutated DNA and nanotechnology. She became referred to as Wetware Mary. I guess that's uh, okay. better, than, sure. better than Typhoid Mary. And as time went by, they found out that Wetware Mary was still around, and she now was called Contrary, who became a major character in the Ultraverse. In fact, she founded the Ultra Force. Uh, the Freaks went on to have crossovers with Nightman. They got involved in the Godwheel crossover, and they even battled Rune. And their series ended with issue 18. Now, if you don't know your Ultraverse history, when Marvel bought them out, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute, they – Ended the Ultraverse universe, basically, and restarted it. Sort of like a Flashpoint New 52 kind of thing. The Ultraverse that came out of Black September was slightly different. The Freaks were never seen after Black September again. In fact, as far as we know, when the universe was restarted, they may not, they may not even exist anymore in, in the history, in the timeline. A couple of Freaks-related characters did appear at different points, like came in and things like that, but there was no mention of the Freaks specifically. So it's possible that they got written right out of the Ultraverse continuity, which would make me very sad. The whole Ultraverse is a little over two years. Is that about right? It launched around June 1993. It closed the doors in 1996. So really it was more like about three years. And it's astonishing to think how much was produced in just three years. And you guys probably think of Ultraverse, if you're not familiar with them, it's probably just some independent company. Who cares? They had a little tiny run. Dude, they were huge. They were really – now, I'm not an expert. I'm, the stuff I'm going to talk about is what, either what I know or I've listened to interviews. Now, you've had on the show Paul O'Connor himself. I mean, he's a comics professor yes. who worked for Ultraverse. So forgive me, uh, Paul, if I get anything wrong or anyone else who might be listening that knows more than me. All right, so Ultraverse, it was a comic imprint published by the parent company of Malibu Comics. They sort of followed the Valiant Comics model, which was emphasizing tight continuity between all their series and, uh, and, and bringing in big-name creators. Check this out. They had folks like Steve Englehart. 
Steve Gerber, Mike W. Barr, Gerard Jones, James Robinson, Walt Simonson, Norm Brayfogle, Dave Gibbons, Howard Shakin, George Perez, Barry Windsor-Smith, Aaron Lepresti, Derek Robertson, Terry Dodson, and many, 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 many more. I mean, those are huge names even today. And these guys all got involved because of they, they liked what Ultraverse was doing. Ultraverse was willing to pay more. Ultraverse gave some, uh, what do you call it, percentage points on certain things. And so people were making more money in the back end. It didn't feel like an independent company. It felt like another Marvel or DC. You feel like you're getting it on the ground floor. And here's where Malibu got really interesting. They went through a lot of efforts to do things differently. They used a lot of media. You've joked about the TV commercials here on your show. Yes, I have. I know you thought it was funny, but they would produce a commercial, and the idea would be they would leave a blank spot at the end where then your local comic shop could then put in a title card or something that says, you know, ABC Comics. While Ultraverse wasn't airing it themselves, I don't believe they would allow the local comic stores to air them. They advertised on the side of buses. What comic book advertised on the side of buses? That's very creative. They actually produced a film for Firearm, which I know you're a big fan of. Firearm number zero, half of the story was in a comic book, half the story was in a VHS tape that came packaged with it, and it was a live-action movie. Was it great? Probably not. However, they no, were trying. No, definitely not. <laughs> they were doing different things. But they do get credit for that. Ultra Force had its own animated series. Less said about it, probably the better. I, I wanted to love it. And there's certain episodes that are actually pretty good, but it's a tough pill to swallow. Nightman had his own live-action syndicated TV series. They had collected editions. This is back in the 90s when trade paperbacks weren't all that common. They, they had, had a lot of trading cards. Three different trading card series, and they're all sitting here on in a, in a box on my floor that I really want to get back into. Uh, they had pogs. They had audio dramas of their stories you could play in your computer. They were really trying everything they i mean they were throwing everything at the wall too they would try everything but they were also doing cutting edge stuff they had a very cutting edge coloring department but they all had decent computers and were doing computerized coloring before anyone else was really that far into it they did a lot of what nowadays we would call gimmicks we we've talked about the 90s right and you and i have and we've talked about some of the ridiculous things they did in the 90s that may have caused the collector market to boot to burst right cover enhancements rare editions chase cards chase figures all that sort of stuff Tom Mason, I talked about him a minute ago on Facebook. He just I'm going to read something he wrote, and I think it's very interesting. It's an inter interesting perspective to hear everyone refer to those kinds of things as a cash grab. It's business 101. Kellogg's dominates the cereal by putting multiple versions of the same cereal. Crest does it with toothpaste. Tide does it with laundry detergent. Only in comics is it considered grimy. And I had to stand back from that when I read that from Tom. And I'm like, that's a really good point. We complain about it, but everyone else does it. Then in 1994, Marvel buys the Ultraverse. A lot of people, and you probably heard it too, said that Marvel bought Malibu for their groundbreaking in-house coloring studio. Have you heard that story before? Yes. And reality is Marvel purchased Malibu's Ultraverse in order to prevent DC Comics from buying it. Yeah. And if DC were to buy it, they would have a, a larger market share than Marvel, and Marvel wasn't going to have that. This is the kind of behavior that also pushed Marvel to bankruptcy, by the way. And Marvel didn't really seem to understand why the Ultraverse had been popular in the first place. So they tried to bring in all kinds of Marvel concepts, and they just kind of messed with everything at an editorial level. Finally, in 1996, during the height of the bust of the 90s, Marvel canceled the whole rest of the Ultraverse line. And we haven't seen any of it since then. Yeah, I, mean, I was going to say, one of the things that I think probably made Ultraverse stand out, even as you just described, freaks in this issue in particular, is that it was different mm -hmm. from DC and Marvel. So 
buying it and trying to marvelize it doesn't seem to be an approach that makes sense. Yeah. Certainly in retrospect, it doesn't. They also ran off a lot of the key people at Ultraverse pretty quickly, and it just uh, it just didn't have the same spirit afterwards. Supposedly, there is a, a particular person. He's not a writer or an artist that you've heard of, but he's a behind-the-scenes guy, and he is woven into the agreements that Marvel has, uh, or the Ultraverse has, I should say, and Marvel doesn't want to do anything with him. Mm. And what they basically say is if a Malibu property is revived and goes beyond the comics to, say, the silver screen or something, this certain individual – has the option of being an ongoing producer for that product. And Marvel wants nothing to do with him. Again, is it true? I can't validate it myself. Sadly, one of the advantages of being a company that big is that you can bury a couple dozen characters and you've got thousands of others. It's disappointing. To choose. I, yes, yeah. There are certain characters that would I think would perform very well. Prime is a great character. And he would make a fantastic either animated or live-action character. But it's never going to happen. Oh, Ultraverse. How so I miss so you. do you feel like you've gotten your Ultraverse network needs met in this? I mean, this is mostly a therapy session. You, you, I, I'm you glad know you I'm, said it. You I know was... I'm not recording this, right? <laughs> of course not. Because I mean, of course I everyone on the Fire and Water network came to me privately. Yeah. Said, really, Shag just needs to talk about this for a while, so... If you could just make something up, make him feel better, give, it him, a, give him a sense. chance to get it off his off his chest. It would explain how I'm not actually being on the quarter bin. That that fits <laughs> in with that whole belief. And uh, it, it actually – therapy is probably – I realized as we were finishing up here, that's probably the best thing this has been for me. Yeah. <laughs> now, now, actually, I, I did go to iTunes, and two things about the Ultraverse Network. Mm-hmm. One, it is still out there. Woohoo! Two – under the listeners also subscribed to mm-hmm. Relatively Geeky Network is there. Wow. All so, right. So all four of your subscribers also subscribe to Ultraverse. That's exactly. nice. Exactly. Hey, wait a minute. <laughs> that's why I keep having guests on. I figure right. at, least, at least they'll subscribe. Exactly. And that's a very good philosophy. Very good <laughs> philosophy. You keep at it. You should have more guests. That way you'll get you know at least seven or eight people. I do have to mention the Ultraverse characters sort of kind of almost got cameos last year when they did the Secret Wars. Marvel did that new Secret Wars thing. I, I haven't read it, but they you'd say, you know, it's sort of like they brought back every character ever. They would squeeze like half of a corner of an Ultraverse character <laughs> in a background and not color right. them. Right. Or or you'd see uh, what was it? Spider Prime, which was. An amalgamation of Prime and Spider-Man in an issue when Marvel owned them, and they brought every Spider-Man character back, so they had to show Spider-Prime, but they showed just enough that they could argue with some other character, probably. But the Ultraverse people were all like, "Woohoo!" <laughs> Affirmation. It was very exciting for those of us that care. <laughs> I would say from here, folks, definitely go out to Facebook and find the Ultraverse group. Join us. Be part of us. It is such an incredibly nice group. I mean, they like you said, they even let you in. They can't be that bad. The standards can't be that high. <laughs> if they allowed me to be a moderator, then you know their standards are pretty low. Now, if someone wanted to hear you talk about something other than the Ultraverse Network or the Ultraverse books, do you podcast about anything else? Usually they just find me hanging out at like the Circle K late at night on a Saturday. I'm there by choice. By uh, choice. Uh, by choice. 
You can find me there, or if you are desperate to do it on your Zona phone or your Zune or whatever you might use to listen to podcasts on, uh, you can find me at the Fire and Water Podcast Network. It is a collection of, gosh, over a dozen different shows now. I appear on the Aquaman and Firestorm show, which is sort of uh, what launched the network. I also appear on our Who's Who podcast, which is dedicated to the glorious series from the 1980s, Who's Who, or soon we'll be diving into the 90s version as we've moved along. I'm also the host of the Justice League International Bwahaha podcast. I am, I hesitate to say a regular, but I, I am on the Hero Points podcast, which is dedicated to the DC role-playing games, but we only put about put out about one episode a year. That's a tough schedule. It's a grueling schedule to maintain. I understand. I'm sure you still haven't listened to episodes two and three yet, so. Maybe. You know, Paul Kupperberg was in episode two. Uh, that was then, the Atlas. Uh, that was the Atlas episode. Yes, it was. See. Everyone loves the Atlas. <laughs> if, if any role-playing book of the DC ever produced, that's the one everyone remembers. <laughs> the Atlas of the DC Universe. And uh, you can find me in other various places. You can find me online on Facebook and Twitter as Firestorm Fan. Anyway, I, I hang around the, me- the Facebook message comments of uh, a relatively geeky from time to time and tell Alan when he's wrong. Regularly. Which is regularly. <laughs> well, that wraps up our coverage of Freaks number two, bringing episode 77 of the Quarterbin podcast. Yes, it's a real episode. I sincerely appreciate being invited on the show, Alan. <laughs> I, as much as it pains me to admit it, I adore your show. I've listened to every episode, and I can't say that to about everybody's shows. It's a real blast. I really enjoy it. Every single I love the concept. You've, you've, could you just shut up and let me talk and let me heap some praise on you for a minute? Goodness gracious. Yeah, you haven't <laughs> talked enough the last hour. <laughs> you've really just sort of tapped into something with this show. Because so many of us are older collectors, and we are like to live on the cheap or find stuff easy. And you really tapped into something that just is very connective with a lot of us, I think, so. Here's the hard part to admit, that that's a part of finding my joy, which I guess I got from you. It has been my mantra. I mean, I I don't think I made up that exact phrase, but um, it's been my mantra for several years now is as we get older or not get older, whatever you might do, you might be a vampire. I don't know. You find that you do a lot of things out of habit. You know, you read a character and you keep buying it. And if you're unhappy with it, you keep buying it because you're we, we're collectors. That's our mentality. You got to have them all, right? You got to break that cycle. Do what you, makes you happy. If you don't like a character anymore, walk away from it. Find something else to read. For me, modern day superhero comics don't hold a tremendous amount of appeal because I'm an old man. Get off my lawn. So instead, what I do is I seek out older comics from my golden age when I was 13, as I learned on your show, that's the golden age of comics is whenever you were 13. So I seek out comics from the mid-80s that I didn't read the first time around. And I find incredible amounts of joy in that. So we all should find our joy, spend less time being frustrated, and spend more time being happy. I do think that is what I realize. You know, Some people find their joy in a character or in a publisher, right, in a particular line mm-hmm. or an era. And for me, it really is a price point. That's, that really is. Somehow, for some reason, that's what makes the difference to me. Whatever makes you happy. Well, next episode, episode 78, we're going to be looking at another dead universe. Well, I guess technically it was a fifth week event. And we've done a couple of amalgam Ooh. books before. And we're revisiting that initiative Next episode by covering Assassins. So again, 
Thanks for joining me, Shag. Look forward to talking to you again sometime down the road. A long, long time down the road. Or perhaps seeing each other face to face in about two months. Oh no, our annual meetup. Yes. Looking forward to it. Liar. Yes. But <laughs> if you, Shag, or any listener, has any questions or comments about the issue, my choice in guests, <laughs> the episode, the Ultraverse, or the podcast, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and, no, he, sh- and he Shag, and I'll, I'll see you in the quarter bin. I'm horribly jealous of you, by the way. Okay. In, well, okay. In your free comic book day adventures, yeah. you have managed two years in a row. Well, I assume so, because I'm only halfway through the To get the, the Doctor Who? Yes! The Doctor Who book, book? I have never even seen one. Now, it occurred to me today to look on Comixology to see if it's yeah, there. Yeah. I didn't even I, know it existed until I listened to your episode last year. I'm like, what? And I went to all the comic shops in town. They're like, oh, no, that was the first one to go. Because I I get all the Titan books. Well, I I get all the Titan books but one. So They're adding more and more. That's becoming uh, crazy. It's expensive. They've added however many Doctors they have now ongoing. I am boycotting the Ninth Doctor. He says he's never looking back. Neither am I. Neither are you. So I hear in episode 75, when you're talking to Paul Spataro, that apparently three for a dollar – is the same as 25 cents? Really? Hey, don't you teach economics, sir? Uh, well, first off, it's summer, so technically right now, no. So math doesn't count in the summer? Is that what you're telling me? I'm just, you know, I, I like to be a pretty easy grader. Uh-huh. So, uh-huh. not I'd everything that I've math. done on the show has been a quarter. It's just that if someone Twitters me or Facebooks me that I got they got some books, three for a dollar. I give them the seal of approval. So you are clarifying that at no point has a 33 and a third cent comic made it onto this show. That is correct. Okay. Well, then although I can... as uh, Although as Stella's pointed out, you know, with tax, it's almost 27 cents. So the whole podcast has been alive from the start. Well, I know she was on an episode, but I didn't really listen to anything she said. Yeah, I wouldn't either. Stella, I, I don't, I I don't usually... Either. So even when I record with her, it's just me talking for the most part, as far as I'm concerned. They were fun, Tom and Stella. Oh, they are, aren't they? They are a nice little comedy duo. Yes. I will see them. They have a finely honed act, it seems like. <laughs> I will see them about two weeks before I see you. Nice. So uh, I had a great time with them last year. Have you I'm met the uh, Sutherlands? I've met them once at Dragon Con. Oh, okay. Uh, did you see the Sutherlands as well? Yep. Yeah, I swung down to North Carolina and visited them. Very that's gonna cool. it's gonna be in that uh, road trip episode because oh, right. no one has ever done that before. Right. It's brilliant. I I cannot imagine where you got this idea. What? <laughs> Clever. Clever that. See, that was one of my favorite visits too. By the way, it was just a, so much fun. That was pretty fun. That yep. was pretty. Meet, meeting Tom was nice too. Tom Zoller. Mm-hmm. That was nice. Yep. And we're planning. I think at, at this point, uh, he is planning, and Emily and I are planning to do Baltimore. Really. In September, so I'll definitely awesome. buy some stuff from him. See, this episode that we're doing now is 77, Okay. and I'm already thinking about episode 100. We'll have, we'll have plenty of time. That That is not till next year, but it's going right. to start doing it in the fall.